run out the rest of the interview here with cool Hollywood stories. Um, <laughs> You've got to touch upon Godfather 3. How about uh, Godfather 3. Okay. Well, Nick there have been a number of attempts to develop a Godfather 3 screenplay, but they'd been abandoned by the time that I became a member of the creative group as executive story editor. And a good friend of mine, Tom Wright, who went on to uh, become the white guy who wrote the breakthrough black film, New Jack City. Uh, Tom was working with this lower level mafiosa on a, an autobiography. Uh, it was actually Johnny Carson's attorney who put him together with this guy's name was Nick Marino. And Nick ran a, a string of uh, porno houses in, in New York. Uh, he, he, was, he was a made man. And uh, from him, Tom learned what the mafia had been up to in the years subsequent to those covered by Godfather II. And Tom wrote, with some help from Nick, uh, a treatment for Godfather III. And he called me up, asked me if I would read it. And then, you know, uh, he wanted to submit it to Don Steele, who was uh, the, the head of production. I read it and I flipped out. Uh, it began with uh, Michael's son, Anthony, graduating from the University of Nevada. This big montage of graduation intercut with a brutal murder of uh, a turncoat and informer uh, on Michael. So kind of, of beginning that fits right in with the other two films. And then it, um, it went to the family coping with change. In this case, uh, outsourcing. They were having to farm out a lot of their work to the Irish, to the Mexicans, to the blacks. And the story concerns Anthony's slow seduction into the family. Uh, it, it pushes on toward Michael's uh, murder by his sister, Connie. And it, uh, it climaxes with the family's move into Atlantic City, New Jersey. And it ends with another montage uh, of the grand opening of the uh, Corleone Casino in Atlantic City presided over by Anthony, the new godfather, as they carry out an assassination of a series of their rivals for dominance in Atlantic City. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And I, I called up Tom, I said, you nailed it. This is dynamite, but there's no way you're giving it to Don Steele. You're giving it to me. I'm new. I promise you, I will get it set up. And I wrote a long memo about it to Dawn, hand carried it to her, had a long discussion, got her on board. And then I went to every other member of the creative group and did the same thing. And when it came to the Monday morning meeting, when we were to consider these things, uh, Ned, uh, as he always did, started with Dawn. And that was great because whatever Dawn had to say about a project that we'd read over the weekend, the others would pretty much fall in place. It was like the domino principle right around the room. Uh, I was always the last to speak because I was the low guy on the totem pole. Well, she, she was very much in favor of it, very enthusiastic. All the others were, got back to me. And of course, I were. And Ned said, I don't like it. It's a money pit. Uh, there's, uh, you know, I, uh, he says, there's no way you can have anyone but Al Pacino to come back from the original cast. I, I still haven't made back Robert fucking Duvall's uh, salary on Tender Mercies. Uh, <laughs> I thought, wait a second, what is he saying? He says, it's your movie, you go make it. Now, what he was saying is, it's your job, you go lose it. <laughs> but I was thrilled. So I call up Tom and schedule a meeting with him and his partner, Nick Marino, uh, in the garden room at the Paramount Commissary. And this guy shows up in a white Rolls Royce. He gets out of the car in his ice cream suit. And he's as wide as he is tall. And he talks like this. And we, we go into the, uh, the commissary garden room, surrounded by all the movers and shakers of Hollywood, and have a conversation about this. And I, I explained to him, we've got the green light. Go ahead. 
on the screenplay, uh, but it's with the proviso uh, that we, we can't bring back any of the actors from the original movies except Al Pacino. And there's silence. And Nick looks at me straight in the eye. He says, well, Dan, you remember that line in Godfather 1 about making you an offer you can't refuse? I like art and Godfather 3. If I can't deal with you, I'll deal with your estate. <laughs> he was threatening to have me rubbed out over casting. Well, fortunately, it was, it was shortly after that that I got a call from Katzenberg uh, to go over to Disney on a three-picture deal, and I took it. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I understand Don Steele, who, who took temporary charge of the project in my immediate uh, absence. Uh, she had a meeting with, uh, with Nick and came out absolutely white-faced and no one does that to Don Steele. I mean, she, we called her balls of steel. I mean, she was one tough lady, <laughs> but even Don was intimidated by this guy. Uh, he, when, when he and, and Tom failed to get credit on the dreadful screenplay that, uh, that Coppola and Puzo put together, uh, he took it all the way to the Supreme Court. He appealed the Writers Guild decision, <laughs> took it into the courts, went literally all the way to the Supreme Court lost so that's that's my godfather story but we don't know the what else can i do for you <laughs> well the follow-up is uh for people who don't know dan went to disney and he was pulled into a meeting with mickey mouse who went you come to me in the day of my daughter's wedding <laughs> hey you know it's actually it's actually not a bad parallel you know they have a, a statue of mickey there on the lot and i had my offices there for a while we always clicked our heels and saluted as uh we went uh past their mouse uh, <laughs> you know, they they were one tough organization they 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 had the head of business affairs the one who writes all the contracts I believe her name was Helene Hahn. We called her the dragon lady because these contracts were so biased in the favor of, of Disney. And you wanted a contract there, you signed it. You didn't negotiate. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was amazing. Wow. Well, uh, you know, Ray compared some of your style of someone to watch over to me to Chinatown. And I think of your career a little bit with Chinatown because, of course, Chinatown, uh, Robert Town, Robert Town, popular like ghostwriter, right? And so you've done uncredited work as well. So what does that exactly entail with a movie like Die Hard with a Vengeance? What is your uncredited work on that film? Well, I read in the trades that, uh, that John McTiernan was a close friend of mine. I helped him get his first movie made and I introduced him to his wife, uh, which endeared me to him until they had the most expensive divorce in history, but that was way on down the line. So anyway, I, I see in the trades that, that John uh, is working with, uh, with Jonathan Hensley, uh, the, uh, the guy who had uh, written Jumanji and, and did the young Indiana Jones Chronicles for TV uh, on a script for Die Hard 3 based upon the spec script that Jonathan uh, had written uh, Simon says, and I, I had also heard through the grapevine that they were, they were having trouble. They weren't making much progress. Well, I got a call from John's secretary. I said, John wants to know the ending of all of Alfred Hitchcock's films. Uh, and can you give it, give them to him? I said, sure. So he, he knew about my, my interest in Hitchcock and, uh, I called him up the next morning. I said, okay, I got him. And there's something like, I don't know, 55 of them. There were a lot. He says, really? So he invited me over for breakfast. And I went on over to the house. And uh, I said, John, I know what you're doing. You're looking for an ending for Die Hard 3. And you know as well as I do that you got to know the ending of the movie before you write the beginning. Come on. You, you, know, you don't just tack on an ending from someone else's film. Just tell me your story and we'll see what we can work out that this is about the theft of, of all the gold in the Federal Reserve in New York City, and that they're gonna, they're gonna get away with it in dump trucks, which are gonna drive up this 35 foot wide pipeline that's being built to uh, funnel water down from upstate to the city. And the, the big scene in the film, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to be when the, the bad guys get their trucks out of the tunnel 
Bruce is pursuing in a truck of his own and they flood the tunnel with all that water from the lake it's coming from. And he has to ride the wave back down the tunnel. That's the reason he made that movie, just for that sequence. The same thing that reason that Hitchcock made Psycho, just for the shower sequence. So he said, the problem is, what the hell are they planning to do with the gold once they get it? What do you do with that much gold? I said, it's, it's easy. We, we, we follow their example and we steal. We'll steal from the best. We'll steal from Goldfinger. Uh, they're going to destroy all of the gold except you know one or two bars uh, and those will be the most valuable commodities in, in the entire world so i i went home and that afternoon i got a bottle of dom perignon by special messenger uh, yeah. no contract uh, no money but a bottle of dom perignon i think it sits right up there in the bookcase behind me oh yeah uh, anyway, uh, they so they go to work and then some months later i get a call from uh, from Donna saying, Dan, I want you to be at the Santa Monica airport at five o'clock this afternoon. You're flying with uh, with John uh, to uh, to the ranch. He had a, a big ranch, like three or four thousand acre cattle ranch, and outside of Sheridan, Wyoming. And uh, you're going to work with him on uh, Die Hard Three. So I get to the airport, and he introduces me to Jonathan Hensley the guy who's working to be reworking. And he hands me, the, John hands me the script. He said, here, read it on the flight over. And when we get to the other side, let me know what you think. So I'm sitting in the Cessna Citation, literally knee to knee with Jonathan Hensley, knowing that he's gotta be dying, wondering what I'm think as I, thinking as I turn each page. <laughs> and uh, it was one of the most uncomfortable flights I've ever made in my life, but I, I finished up and I, I said, look, I, I think an awful lot of this works. Here's where I think the problems are. And Jonathan agreed with me completely. So after that, we were a team and uh, we went to work. Uh, we, we had a great time. Uh, the best moment came after we'd finished the treatment and sent it off to Fox and got back these horrible notes that were so destructive, there wouldn't have been anything left of the story if we followed, this is typical, it, it, it happens all the time. And we're downstairs, John gets, he's a late riser. Uh, matter of fact, I, I wrote a story for Disney called Blood Money and there's a character in there who's, who's this sort of beaten up alcoholic ex-cop uh, and he's working with this FBI woman and he comes in three hours late for the meeting he's scheduled to have with her and she berates him. He says, I'm like fucking Dracula. I don't get up till the sun comes down. Well, that's John. I mean, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, he's getting ready to put in his appearance. Anyhow, uh, we're down there with Donna, Jonathan and I and Donna, wondering in, in the, the, the dining room where there's big blazing fire because this was in the wintertime, uh, wondering what we're going to do with these notes, these terrible notes from Fox. John comes down and he sees the dejection on our faces and he says, what's the matter? And I said, well, we, we got these notes from Fox and we don't know what to do with them. And he says, where are they? I hand them to him. He says, I'll show you what to do with them. He tears them in half, throws them in the fire and we go on with the treatment just as it was before. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, like that that famous story about uh, John Ford, some young uh, studio exec came to him and told him he was uh, he was a day behind and uh, and he he says, well, uh, how many pages you reckon we shoot in a day? And uh, the guy tells him, so he counts out. Say it was five pages. Counts out five pages, tears <laughs> them out of the script. Never shot those five pages. <laughs> oh, it it shows you what you can do when you have that kind of success behind you but it can disappear just as fast as it's come. And as it did in John's case, eventually. So several months after that, uh, oh, oh the, they, they, Bruce didn't like the treatment because we, uh, Angela Bassett was actually under contract at this point. He had a female uh, best buddy, female buddy in, in our version of the story. And he didn't like that because he'd just done, I think it was Sunset where he had a female uh, buddy and it had failed. So no female buddy, end of, of, that, of that version of the story. So several months later, 10.30 at night, I get a call from Donna. Dan, you're meeting John 
at LAX uh, at midnight for the Red Eye to New York, uh, where you're going to help him uh, on the, the screenplay uh, for Die Hard. Now they're shooting it, you know, I mean, <laughs> or about to shoot it. We're days away. I get back there and I find that Lorenzo Semple Jr., bless him, the, the creator, Batman, pow, zowie, uh, and, and of uh, oh, Three Days of the Condor and uh, Seconds, and, well, uh, on and on it goes, uh, not Seconds, excuse me. Uh, what was that other wonderful thriller? It doesn't matter. Anyhow, he's, he's working on the first act. David Shaver, uh, those lips, those eyes, play award-winning playwright. He's working on the second act. And I've got the third act. And there's some other guy whose name I don't even remember, who's faxing in dozens of pages every day, have no idea what he was working on. And then John is putting it all together each night uh, from what he receives from us. Uh, it was, needless to say, a tad chaotic. Well, then about two weeks into that experience, I got a call from the producer of what became my most successful uh, movie of the week, a uh, uh, friend of Die For, Death of a Cheerleader. Um, and he asked me to come back and handle the, the big press conference. You got 450 journalists, critics coming in from all over America to hear about the uh, network schedules, uh, the programming that they've got scheduled for the next uh, season. So he, he said, if you come back, I'll make you executive producer. And, I, and which I deserved because I was on the set every day and working very, very closely with the director. We kind of directed it together. Uh, so I, I did that and I left the project at that point. Now, uh, they, they had, I'd, I'd come up with this really spectacular climax to the movie that took place at a shipyard. And I, we don't have time to go into it, but it was really good. Uh, I'm very proud of it. And they, they'd actually built a set and it turns out after I left, and I, I don't know what happened, Bruce decided he didn't want to shoot that ending. So they shot another, and then they shot another. And if you look at carefully at the movie, you'll see it ends twice. Uh, and now you know why movies are what they are. I mean, that is typical of the way a movie gets made. You got four or five writers working on it once. Nobody knows what the, the, the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. And a lot of stuff doesn't makes sense. I mean, I didn't mean to go on so long, but that's what I do. And, and you can so, see I'm very good at it. <laughs> you put in all that time, you don't get the credit. You get a paycheck, though, I hope, for the love of God, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For okay, the, you know, my third, <laughs> second and third stint, I got a very nice paycheck. Yeah. Uh, it's just the first one got that, I think it was that bottle of Dom Perignon. I got two of them. I got I got one from the, the head of uh, Interscope uh, when I turned in my, my first uh, screenplay, Whispers, and uh, then the other one from John on, uh, on the suggestion that he steal the ending of uh, Goldfinger. <laughs> you know, in Hollywood, of course you steal, but what you try to do is steal from the best. <laughs> I love two of your quotes, uh, two, about, two of my favorites. Uh, heads roll in Hollywood, but they usually just roll into another studio. And fear is the fuel that runs Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. Uh, everyone is terrified. Every one of those. So one of the reasons they behave so, the stars behave so badly, is they're, they're just horrified at the possibility that it could end tomorrow. And sometimes it does. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's afraid. Everyone's afraid. And uh, you also said any movie that gets made is a miracle. A good one is the second coming. Now, I bring that up on the <laughs> yes. movie guys all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I bring it up on a movie guys all the time because we review we've reviewed movies over time and but I still know it's so hard to make one like I think if I like I, I independent films want me to review their movies sometime and I go I didn't like it so I'm not going to review it because what I, it doesn't do any good to just step on a movie that is so but you spend 200 million dollars and it's a it's a it's a piece of junk you yeah. can hear about it from me. <laughs> but still, both of those are a miracle to make. That much stuff. I mean, it sounds like Die Hard with a Vengeance is a miracle, make, given the way they chose to make it. You know, so, yes. And so a good one is indeed the second coming. And one I love um, is Witness. And you were a story editor at Paramount. I'm starting a podcast here at the Movie Guys called The Ford Fiesta. My friend Adam mm. and I are choosing to watch every Harrison Ford movie ever made. 
and do an episode each on each movie, starting with Dead Heat and a Merry-Go-Round, going all the way to The Call of the Wild and everything in between. And we're, we're up to American Graffiti, which I just saw yesterday. It took by Verna Fields. I mean, that movie's a masterpiece. But, but we're oh. going to make our way up to Witness eventually. And I love this film. And so you and your description of your job says you found and recommended movies for Paramount. Now, what does that mean? How do you find Witness? And what was your role in making that movie happen? Which was, of course, Harrison Ford's only uh, Oscar nomination and just this great Peter Weir movie. If you haven't seen, you, you really should. Well, I was at that point still a story analyst. Uh, I hadn't been promoted to uh, exact story editor yet. Uh, it was it was uh, a project developed by Ed Feldman, and I think his father was was one of the biggest uh, agents. And you know, at any rate, Ed Ed was the producer of uh, uh, the Last Married Couple in America. That that less than mediocre movie that I apprenticed to. I learned so much. I mean, I learned so much about me. I was in the, the editing room when they wouldn't let Gail Cates in the editing room, the, the director, uh, and all of that Vern is doing. At any rate, it, it, came, I don't, it didn't come into me. It came into one of the uh, executives and they sent it to the story department for coverage. And this, this is a standard sort of thing. That's what story departments do. Uh, was assigned to me and it was called called home it was not called witness called home and i was i was blown away it was all there it was all there on the page um and i went into laura lee the story editor and i said you know i think i just committed professional suicide i've recommended a love story between a tough city cop and an Amish woman. <laughs> and she <laughs> looked at me. <laughs> uh, well, lo and behold, they picked it up. I, I think Harrison Ford may have been attached at the time. I'm not sure, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a name that was gonna necessarily get a movie like that made. Uh, but they, they picked it up and I will say this, I, I recommended a lot of screenplays that ultimately made it to the screen. Sometimes at the studio I was working for, sometimes at other studios. And the only one that was as good as, not better than, as good as the script was Witness. Why? They shot the script. They shot the script. There was only one major change. And it, it, the, the director had the good sense to shoot what was on the page. And George Cukor used to say, it's, it's the text. It's the text, dear boy, the text. <laughs> uh, he, he didn't let the actors improvise. He didn't make up scenes as they shot them. He didn't have someone rewriting on the scene. He shot the text that he'd loved enough to commit to this. The, the story in the first place. And that's that's pretty much been lost. Uh, but really, uh, that, I think it was, uh, when when I, I say any movie that gets made is a miracle and a good one is a second coming, it is witness that I have in mind as the second coming because it truly turned out to be as good as what the authors had written. Uh, Dan, you mentioned Edward S. Feldman. He also produced uh, Truman, which was mm -hmm. successful, and two of the most insane thrillers I will ever remember, and that is Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark and the Rutger Hauer movie, The Hitcher. Mm -hmm. Those were riveting. He's yeah. a very good producer and a good guy. As a matter of fact, when I first came to town as, as an intern at Universal and was assigned to The Last Married Couple in America, they were shooting, I think it was out at the Reseda roller rink. And uh, I, I walked in and they, they had the playback machine going. Uh, it was blasting out, do you think I'm sexy? And there were all these people going around. Well, Ed was one of them. He was, he was making his Alfred Hitchcock appearance. And he <laughs> fell on his ass, smack dab in front of the camera. <laughs> that, that was my introduction to Ed Feldman. Nice guy. 
Well, if you are wondering if uh, Dan's commentary on, you know, just shoot the script, don't mess with it. He, he does this once over of his own movies and how they traveled from a script to screen, uh, including A Taste for Killing, The Last Innocent Man, Death of a Cheerleader, which you said Death of a Cheater, Cheerleader is the one that went from what you wrote to on the screen. Pretty made you pretty happy well the other ones of course had all these changes and twists along the way to kind of where you went eh, the heck with it right well the wonderful thing that happened yeah you you lose control and generally they don't want you on the set because you chances are you know more about these characters and the structure of the thing than the director does and they hate that uh, yeah. so they don't they don't want the, the first writer on the set uh they want someone who's who is much less committed uh and that's why there's so much rewriting that goes on but in in the case I, I got really, really lucky with, uh, with uh, Death of a Cheerleader. Uh, I was working with Steve White, who's this immensely talented producer. He, his father worked for Bob Hope. Uh, he, was, he was at UCLA with Francis Ford Coppola and he was the first head of American Zoetrope because Coppola was so impressed with one of the student films he'd press, he'd produced there. Uh, he went on to become the road manager for the Grateful Dead. Then he was a founding member of the Groundlings, which provided much wow. of the cast of Saturday Night Live. And then he became head of production at uh, uh, two of the major networks. Uh, I think it was uh, NBC and ABC. And then head of uh, New World Pictures, uh, where they did Heathers under uh, his uh, direction. Uh, at any rate, we really hit it off. And we, we were always on the same page. And that's what very rarely happens. And that's, that's what makes a good movie, I think. Uh, at any rate, something happened. We, we got a commitment from Kelly Martin to star. And she was doing a series called Christie at the time. And we, we also had a director, I've now forgotten who it was, committed. And Kelly's series was uh, moved up. So that unless we moved up our production we were going to lose her and she was one of the best young actresses working in that day uh i i always thought of her as the one owner writer of tv so we lost our director by making that move he was still working on another project and steve invited me in to sort of fill the hole that was left by his absence uh and my first job back in those days the audience for the television film was women over 30. Uh, that, was, that was what all the marketing research told them. So even though this was about 15 year old girls, uh, we, we had to have um, uh, some actress with a high TVQ uh, to come in and, and play uh, a role. And we uh, offered the role of the mother uh, to Valerie Harper with whom uh, Steve had worked before. So he asked me to come in. I knew her, she was also in last married couple in America. And I knew her from that. So he asked me to come in and uh, participate in the process of seducing her into accepting the role. So she came in, I sat down and said, Valerie, in order to play this part, you're going to have to play against type. It's not Rhoda. You're going to have to play against who you are. She's not nice like you. She's not warm and outgoing. Uh, and I, I told her that this was a woman who had fire, but it was banked and it was banked very, very deep. And it only comes out at the very, very end. I told her about seeing Diana Rigg do Lady Macbeth uh, in, uh, in Britain and how when you first see her, she's upright, her hair is pulled back, their face is stretched, it's so tight. Her hands are clenched like this. And she's standing this way. And then by the end of the third act, she's hunched over, her hair is folded down and her hands are working, working, working. I said, that's what you're gonna have to do. And Steve kept saying, but you don't have to play it that way if you don't want to. I had, Steve, shut up, shut up. <laughs> oh, he walks her out to her car and, uh, and he comes back and he says, okay, Bronson, I'm gonna be straight with you. I know you wanna direct. But I'm going to tell you this. There's no way Valerie will ever accept this role. Stars only want to know two things. How big is my part and will they love me? Uh, oh, 
man, I, I really, I went home and told my wife, I, I really screwed up. And I told her about it. Next morning, about 10, the phone rings. Steve White, the producer. He says, well, Valerie called. And she said, you know, Steve, there was no way I was ever going to accept that part. Uh, I only came in because I had such a good experience working with you the last time. But after talking to Dan, I'm in. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, what that meant was that uh, I was involved in location scouting. I, you name. It. They bring on the director, William A. Graham, Billy Graham. He directed the first MOW ever made. He'd done about seventy of them, along with twelve features. At the time I, I met him, and uh, Billy and I just bonded. He, he was. 68 years old, had a 39-year-old wife, a three-year-old daughter, rode a, miter, a motorcycle in each day from what he called the all-too-aptly named Carbon Canyon, where he had blasted through the fire barricades, stood on top of the roof with a garden hose, and fought the fire that burned everything around him. He'd sailed around Cape Horn in his own boat. He was a helicopter pilot. I mean, we just, we hit it off. Uh, and he included me and everything, including, I remember sitting, we were casting and uh, we wrapped up the day and he turned to me and he said, isn't this fun? Can't, can you believe that they pay us to do this? And I thought, yes. I mean, he had that attitude I'm talking about. He knew how lucky he was. He knew lucky, how lucky all of us were to be working in the business. At any rate, uh, I, I was at his side throughout the whole thing. He would even, if I call him aside and said, you know, Billy, I don't think that quite worked to the staging of that last thing. He'd go back and restage. Uh, he, he gave me a part in the film. <laughs> I'm the jogger. I gave a hell of a performance. I want you to know. It was, they, they shot what I wrote. That's great. And keeping you involved as well. Well, and you know, and I'm convinced that that's, that's why they remade it badly uh 25 years later it became such a cult film uh it's it's known all over the world there there are websites devoted to it in china in india in places that you wow. would never suspect and they they even someone wrote a song which i guess sold quite a few copies called death of a cheerleader based upon the the movie so but they they shot what i wrote and i and just as they did with witness well, I, uh, oh, and Witness, I think, won Best Editing at the Oscars. So even in post, they didn't screw it up. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. watching uh, American Graffiti like I did yesterday and researching it, you know, St. George Lucas just had to push through his vision between, you know, or there were so, there were some dummies at Universal that thought American Graffiti was an Italian movie about feet. That's a fact I found out. Like, and he's like, what? And so United Artists gives him 10 grand to rewrite the script. He pays a guy to rewrite it. The guy rewrites it. He's like, this is not where I was going. So the 10 grand just goes, and he's like, I got to start over. In three weeks, he cranks out another script. All these different forces, you know, they, they come in and they say, we're not releasing it. Coppola goes, I'll buy the movie from you, you know, and, and uh, then they eventually convince him to, you know, he's like, I want to use all these songs. He's like, well, we don't have the money. You know, we'll make the money. We just won't have a composer. You know, he's just like, I fight and fight and fight. And, you know, then, of course, as we all know, $777,000 to make it uh, $200 million at the box office. Like, yeah. you got to let these guys sometimes when the, you have to remind yourself the reason why you invested in these artists in the first place. Once they start making the thing, you're giving them the means to make. You know, it's crazy. Well, you've got to have the backing of someone like Coppola, uh, to get away with that. I unfortunately fought like hell uh, for Last Innocent Man, for my, my screenplay at, uh, at HBO. There was this guy there, I, I won't mention his name, uh, but he, he kept giving me these terribly destructive notes, which I refused to execute at one point I was so angry, I, I will tell you frankly, I almost jumped up, leapt across his desk, took him by the shoulders and banged his head against life. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, it was that violent. And I didn't have that kind of backing. Yeah. So they took the screenplay out, gave it to other people. Actually, 
I'm very proud of the fact that they took it to uh, Walter Bernstein, who, who wrote The Front, uh, The Molly Maguires, one of, the, one of the great, great Hollywood screenwriters. And he sent it back to them and, and said, there's no way I'm rewriting this script. You should shoot it the way it is. Yeah. But that wasn't good enough for this guy. He sent it out to others. Uh, and then when it, it, well, then they started looking for directors and they sent it to my friend, Robert Ellis Miller, one of the, re the guys who brought me to Hollywood. I mean, I was so in love with art as a lonely hunter. It inspired me along with several others to come to Hollywood. We became great friends. Anyhow, I got a call and this, this was actually before we became friends, as a matter of fact, I'd forgotten. Got, we had the same agent. I got a call from my agent. He said, Robert Ellis Miller wants to direct The Last Innocent Man. And I, I was thrilled beyond belief. And HBO interviewed him, turned him down. Why? Because he wanted to shoot the script. Uh, that, that's the mistake they make. Again, if, if a script is good enough for you to green light it, then it's good enough for you to shoot it intact. But they don't get that. Yeah. And they, I mean, you talk about Coppola getting Lucas's back. I mean, I coined a phrase yesterday I hadn't thought of before. It's genius incest. The 70s, just all those guys, De Palma, Spielberg, Coppola, Lucas, they all had each other's back. And then, you know, they all pulled from the studio too, like American Zotrope. I'm going to start my own. And Lucasfilm, basically Empire Strikes Back is the world's most popular and famous and profitable independent film you know that yep. then fox just releases but he didn't work with them you know they you can see all the early decisions the studios made that were poor that caused these guys to become mavericks and maybe we need to be thankful for that but you got to see the fight it took to establish themselves as the geniuses they were yeah. yeah i i moved to i should have let them i should have tried to give them what they wanted without destroying what I'd written, but it was pretty hard because what they wanted was so destructive. I'm, you know, enough experience now to know that, but I was following the example of my mentor, Lamont Johnson, who fought the producers like hell every step of the way, but, you know, he had enough success behind him. He could do that. I didn't. And I was blackballed by, by HBO for years to come. I'm probably still blackballed there. Yeah, well, it's HBO Max now. Maybe you can circle around and we'll have a new attitude. <laughs> uh, well, I again, the, the book is uh, someone to watch over me, and I'll give further plugs on that. As soon as I ask you the final question, the question I ask everyone who I talk to on the movie, guys, what is your favorite movie of all time? Godfather 1 and 2, back to back. I think the greatest movie ever made. It's a film... It's a Greek tragedy. It's, it's a film fugue of the sort that Griffith tried and failed to make an intolerance. And I once had the honor to meet Coppola, told him exactly that. And then I recovered myself and explained to him why the uh, Godfather saga for TV uh, was a catastrophe, uh, that he had he told this non-chronological story in chronological order and uh, and had restored all of the scenes he'd so wisely cut, and he never should have done it that it compromised the greatest movie ever made. Uh, and I think he said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I can't help this mouth of mine. I'm a little bit <laughs> like Jack. <laughs> I think he's got a line like that. He, he just, sometimes he can't control his mouth. Uh, no, it, I, I truly believe to this day that, and I'm, and I, I'm, I feel supremely awful about what happened with Godfather 3. I, I like to think that if I'd been able to stick with it, that it might have been a very different movie. Did you see the recut they recently put out? What was that called, Ray? What they call it? The Godfather 3? It's called, the, it's called Mario Puzo's... Oh, God. The, the, the death of Michael Corleone. That's oh, my it. God. It's so truncated. It, it is so... I, you know what? I... And Paul, Paul gave it to me as a gift for Christmas. <laughs> I, I didn't know if it would be good. Oh, oh, I didn't know if it would be hey, good. Your, your well, position there must okay, be so. in jeopardy. Uh, you know, <laughs> I can't, I, I, no, I didn't see it. I, frankly, I had a hard time watching the first one. You know, when, when Sofia Coppola is shot down on the steps of that cathedral, I applauded and cheered. I mean, he was so bad. <laughs> She was so god awful. I couldn't bear it. I, I think I, I think I walked out of the academy screening. Uh, I, I so, and and Coppola should leave 
leave his things alone. I mean, he gets it right the first time. And every time he goes back, he adds material that he wisely cut out and he loses a lot of the power of, of what he's done. He's well, a great, great filmmaker, but he doesn't know when to leave well enough alone. Yeah, and I, I believe the, that they tagged, he tagged Mario Puzo's name on there to throw him under the bus. That's a very interesting theory, yeah. (laughs) Look, there are some very interesting cuts in the new cut. There are some things that are are good, but it still doesn't make up for Sofia Coppola being in the film and uh, Andy Garcia trying to play uh, James Caan's son, which doesn't (laughs) work at all. So it's it's still I'm sorry to say it's still a mess. It's an interesting mess, but uh, and, and it's interesting because the people you know they, they said is this a cash grab? Yes, I'd say it's a cash grab. Unlike the new 4K version of Apocalypse Now, which is actually shorter than the redo, uh, that actually is a very interesting cut. So I, I would recommend it. Oh, I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah, I stood in uh, Lion in the Hot Sun uh, in Westwood back when he was still editing that film in order to be one of the first to be privileged to see the thing. Uh, I, I just, I, I had heard from Lamont Johnson that, that he was waiting around in millions of feet of film and, wow. and you know, didn't know how to end the thing. Anyhow, uh, it's, it's a film that, that, that had a tremendous impact on me. Heart of Darkness is one of my favorite novels. So it was, it was interesting to see how he took the basic idea of it. That, that, and that's really as much as he took. Uh, but no, Godfather Three. it was a half-baked turd to begin with. And now I guess it's a turd that's baked in 30 years of sun, uh, but it remains a turd. Uh, there's just, <laughs> it's too bad. You know, it'd be cool if somebody actually decided to produce Tom Wright and Nick Marino's story. Oh, absolutely. Well, it would make Tom and Nick very happy, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's a shame because it it had the potential to be as great as, as the two earlier films. It really did. And I, I have no idea what happened. I mean... What, what was going on in Coppola's life at the time, uh, Puzo's life, I, I don't know. Uh, but it, it does, that's the reason I didn't watch the, the remake of number three is I wow. felt number, the original number three compromised the first two films. And I just, I can't bear that because I, I have such unadulterated admiration for those two movies. I, I'm, I'm just curious, you'll have to excuse me, I don't want to divert, but we mentioned Tom Wright, and I'm just curious that, am I mistaken that Tom Wright actually wrote Last Flag Flying or he had uncredited or something? Here's a really interesting story. Uh, Tom is one of my oldest and closest friends. Some, I guess now it's probably about 12 years ago. He got together with, um, uh, oh, what's his name, who wrote the the novel the last detail and encouraged him to write a sequel and tom optioned the film rights to that sequel novel and he actually got jack nicholson to commit to coming back to play the original role and he was looking for a director about, well, actually it was the last time that I worked with John McTiernan. I was over at his ranch in midwinter in Wyoming. Oh God, I, I had a house of my own, but I, I, I feared I was gonna freeze to death walking the, I don't know, 500 feet from that house to the main ranch house to work with John. The winds come down off the, you know, the polar winds off the Canadian uh, plains. Oh my God. Anyhow, uh, while I was working with him on uh, a, a totally different uh, story, uh, I got a call from Tom and he said, do you think John would be interested in directing the sequel to the last detail? And I said, look, I'll talk to him about it, but it's not his kind of material. I, John makes popcorn movies. That's how he described what he does. I make popcorn movies. Uh, 
they're sheer entertainment. Uh, and he's not interested in much of anything beyond that. Uh, and that's fine, but it, it means he's not through. And it, it turned out I was right. He, he had no interest. Well, uh, John eventually got um, the writer director of Boyhood who won the Academy Award a couple of years back. Oh. Okay, I'm going to fill in here. Richard Linklater and the yeah. author of the book was Daryl Ponixon. Yeah, it was Daryl Ponixon. Yeah. Daryl Ponixon. Yeah, you have to excuse these memories. Linklater, uh, but I mean, uh, I loved Last Flag Flying. Well, you. Linklater loved the script, but he wasn't a big enough director at the time to get us, even with Jack Nicholson committed. That's how hard it is. I mean, any movie that gets made is a miracle. Well, it looked like this one wasn't going to. So John loses, or excuse me, Tom loses the uh, the film rights to the book, the sequel, and uh, goes away and loses the, the rights to the, 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 the uh, screenplay as well. The sequel goes away. Uh, 10 years later, Tom comes home and finds a message on his answering machine. It says, Tom, I, I hope this is still uh, your, uh, your phone number. Uh, the, this is uh, Rick Linkletter. Uh, Linkletter, give me a call. So he does. And he says, Tom, you know, I, uh, I've had a lot of uh, offers since uh, Boyhood came out. And uh, I, I met with uh, the head of, uh, of Amazon Productions the other day. And he said, look, we want to be in business with you. What have you got that you've always wanted to make? And uh, uh, I, I want to read the, the films that you haven't managed to get made. And uh, he said, so I, I sent him three films. And... Uh, three screenplays and the guy came back and said look i love all of them but my favorite is last flag flying and link later diplomat that he is said well it's mine too <laughs> and uh, uh, he said we're in pre-production and you're the co-executive producer that's how tom got that job i mean it's the opposite of what usually happens right. you know the friends can't wait to screw over other friends <laughs> yeah. uh, it's I, I have such admiration for Linklater, whom I've never met. Uh, I, I just can't believe that after 10 years, he went back. To, it's the opposite of what happened to uh, a mutual friend of mine and Ray, Carl Schanzer, oh, who, uh, who had this, uh, this film called Color Me Bad written by, I remember him telling me over breakfast that, that uh, he uh, had found this, these new writers that were just terrific. Can, can you believe that one of them's named Billy Bob? Uh, well, <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton, uh, Carl Schanzer had, uh, had optioned this wonderful screenplay and was, was the first to show up in Hollywood by uh, Billy Bob and Jim Epperson. And he took it to a friend of his who turned him down, a guy with a small company. And the instant Carl lost the uh, option on the screenplay, his friend picked it up and made it uh, a mediocre movie. And yeah, it was it was a, it was a mediocre movie. The, the but Billy Bob was was a, he was grateful to Carl for what he did. And if you if you look at uh, Sling Blade, uh, you'll find that the uh, lead character's name is Carl. Wow. Uh, so even in this story of the kind of awful behavior typical of most people in Hollywood, you get an example of wonderful loyalty and friendship uh, in, uh, in Billy Bob uh, and, uh, and in Linklater. So well, there you have it. Yeah, when I met, uh, when Carl had that script, I had met Billy Bob. I, I had read the script, I thought it was amazing. I said it was, I can't remember, was that in the 90s or was that the 80s? 96. I think it was in the 90s, I think it was early 90s. 90s. Okay. I said it was a 90s in the heat of the night. Very mm. edgy. I said, I'd never see it. And I said, I can't believe two white guys wrote this. And <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah, it was mind blowing. And then Carl goes, do you want to meet him? And I went, sure. And these guys come walking in, Billy Bob and, and Epperson, and they look like Hicks. <laughs> here, down to here, and he's wearing torn jeans. And I'm thinking, is this a joke? And... I couldn't, we talked for like an hour and a half talking about a script and I, and I absolutely loved it. It was amazing. That was, uh, it was a hell of a meeting. Well, you're, you're lucky. I wish I'd had that meeting. I love the script too. 
I, I just I thought, wow, he's really onto something here. Uh, yeah. But it's a tough, tough town. Yeah, and, I still have that script too. Huh? Yeah, I probably do, but I've got so much stuff stored away, I can't find <laughs> out what I've got. So, I think I'll leave our audience with, it's a tough, tough town. <laughs> and so that wraps another... Uh, that wraps another TMG interview. Follow us at Twitter and all over Instagram and uh, social media at the movie guys. Thanks to Dan Bronson. Somewhere to watch over me is available right now at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Walmart, and more. And an audiobook on the horizon, you, you were saying. So we'll look for that too. Um, any other plugs? Do you have social or a website or anything you want people to visit? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I have two websites. One is hollywood-nobody.com which I'm rather proud of. It's, it's a parody of Hollywood ego. So in place of bio, it's life of Dan, somewhat like life of Christ or life of Brian. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's all in that vein. The, 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 I, the, the bio is, I have a confession to make. Uh, let's see. I am a recovering academic and uh it, it it goes on along anyhow it's a lot of fun it's just it, the, the whole thing is is made to be fun and funny the new one which is to promote that book but primarily to promote the new one and and the sequels that i hope to write uh is dan hyphen bronson.com i've been a hyphen all my life you know writer producer why not be a hyphen in my websites so <laughs> Uh, there's there's a lot of information about uh, both books on uh, on those two websites and and a background about me as well. So yeah, that's great. Share it with your your listeners. That'd be terrific. All right, and you can find everything we're up to, including reviews, articles, and more, at themovieguys.net. Thank you, Dan. Go ahead and crack open that Don Perignon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah.